Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Everyday Oral Surgery Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Grant K. Stuckey. As a reminder, in this podcast, you will be hearing surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral max facial surgery. Most of the information shared will be based on personal experience and opinions. If you are a regular follower of the podcast, please go to our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, create a profile and log in. There you can post questions about topics that you would like to receive comments on from oral and maxillofacial surgeons. On the website, you can also sign up for the weekly newsletter that will highlight the current episodes. Additionally, if you are a true fan of the podcast, you can purchase our sweet merch such as cool jackets, hoodies, and hats with the Everyday Oral Surgery logo on it. The last and most important thing, if you would like to be a guest on the podcast or know someone that you'd like to hear from on the podcast, please, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com so I can get that set up for us. It's so important to keep making high quality content for all of us to learn. Without further ado, enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. Barrett and Drayson. He is an oral radiologist practicing in Salt Lake City, Utah. Barrett, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. First question is if you could just give us a brief history about your training and kind of your current practice setup and how it works. Yeah. So as you stated, I'm an oral maxillofacial radiologist. There's not a lot of us running around and even within the dental community, there's a little bit of confusion about who we are and what we do. So I am a trained and licensed dentist. So I'm licensed in Utah. I can go to an office and practice dentistry. Now, that said, I haven't touched a handpiece in years. So <laughs> you really don't want me in an office doing anything, but legally I am able to. So I did go to dental school. I went to Texas A&M College of Dentistry out in Dallas, Texas. Some of you might know it as Baylor College of Dentistry. That changed a few years ago, but I was trained in dental school, did all the training, did all the tests, all the fun stuff. And then I went and did a oral radiology residency at UCLA out in Los Angeles. And for those of you who are a little bit unfamiliar with what that entails, so I received a two-year advanced training in primarily CBCT technology. So radiation physics, radiation biology, interpretation, evaluation. Then, of course, we went more into depth into your traditional 2D dental radiography, so panoramics, PAs, bite wings. And then we also touched on some of the medical radiology. So medical CT, MRI, a little bit of ultrasound and nuclear medicine, but again, primarily CBCT because that's the new bright, shiny toy of dentistry. And that's the way that dentistry is going in general. And then as far as what I do currently, I own a radiology practice. It's online. The practice's name is called Radiodontics. And so what this allows me to do is it allows me to work with dentists and dental specialists from across the country, helping to fulfill the needs of dentists for whatever radiology indications that they have. So if they have questions on a CBCT or panoramic radiograph, they can send that to me online over my practice. I'll get that, take a look at it, send a report back. And then if the referring doctor has any questions, we can sit down and discuss what needs to happen next. One question, you know, that I think comes up a lot for some of us who are taking the CBCTs is if we should get a formal read and how that all works, you know, medical legally and also 
just for the treatment of our patients. How, how would you answer those questions if someone had that for you? You know, we really need to get a, a read by somebody like you who specialized. Yeah, no, that's a question I get all the time. So radiology and dentistry, it's a little gray area because traditionally dentists have been their own radiologists, right? We started off with bite wings, PAs, moved to panoramics, and we've slowly gained this ability and this responsibility as a dental profession to review our own radiographs. And now that we're getting into CBCT technology, there's more discussion on the legality behind reviewing scans and things like that. So let's start off with what's been said about our responsibility reviewing CBCTs. So to preface this, I'm not a lawyer. I didn't go to school to become a lawyer. I don't want to go back to school to become a lawyer. So if there's any specific questions, please go and discuss it with your malpractice lawyers because that's their whole thing. But what we can do is we can review what some of the governing bodies in dentistry have said regarding this topic. So the ADA and the American Academy of Oral and Axofacial Radiologists, they've both come out and stated that legally you are required for everything that's on your scan. It doesn't matter whether it's immediately in the dental alveolar region, it doesn't matter if it's in the spine, base of the skull, if you captured it on your CBCT, you're responsible for it. And, you know, this isn't new, right? This isn't any different from what we had with our panoramics before. We still captured areas outside of our immediate interest, but now we just have more information and more anatomy to go through and review. And we really haven't had as much training or support to do that with our CBCTs. So legally, we, we have been asked to go through and review the scans. Now, we also should consider ethically, should we be going through the scans? And when we sit down and think of it from an ethics standpoint, you know, really for the benefit of the patient, we should be going through our own scans and we should be reviewing everything within them. If you had a scan and there was a potential for pathology outside of the area, you know, you would want that reviewed for that potential pathology. Now, coming back to should we get a radiology report for each and every single scan, it kind of depends. And I would say a hard fast no to every single scan requiring a radiology report, but it's very similar to our other procedures within dentistry itself. Do we need every single third molar being extracted by a oral surgeon who's had advanced training and can handle complications, things like that. Well, no, we have general dentists doing third molar extractions all the time, right? And it would be a little overkill to have every single third molar referred out. Now, the same thing goes with radiology, right? There are quote unquote complicated radiology studies that should be interpreted by a radiologist and I would say a lot of that comes back to your familiarity and your training within CBCT technology itself. So if you're someone who's starting out with CBC technology, you're really just getting your feet wet into this awesome new avenue, I would really highly recommend finding an oral radiologist that you can work with, sitting down and coming together to figure out how you can protect yourself legally, but at the same time also getting that training and education that you can from the oral radiologists as they do radiology reports for you. Now, a lot of trouble that dentists come into with radiology is when they start getting outside of the region of the 
dentition, the mandible and maxilla, right? With these CBCT machines, we have a capability to now begin to capture structures that we're not used to seeing, right? We start to capture some of the TMJs and that captures some of the base of the skull. We start to get some of the spine as we look at the airway. We also see stuff in the sinuses. We see things in the skull base. And so as we get further and further outside of our area of comfort, that's where we start to have more of those complicated CBCT scans. And so that's where I do believe that we should start getting radiology reports for is on those larger CBCT scans where we're more unfamiliar with the anatomy, less familiar with the pathology that can be present. And so we do need that expert set of eyes to go through and review those scans for us. And then another question is, you know, if we were to use your services or another radiologist, what are usually the types of fees we can expect and what types of insurance cover? Is it medical or dental? How does all that work? Yeah. So the industry standard right now is going around $100 per CBCT report. And myself, as well as other oral radiology companies, will do discounts for offices that are sending multiple reports or bulk pricing, right? Just because you get familiar with the offices and it's easier to work with them and their staff and you understand what the referring doctor is looking for. So things become easier on us and the reports just in general become better for everyone all around. Now, as far as what covers that fee, it's a little bit of hit or miss. So dental insurance hasn't really caught up with CBCT technology. I mean, insurance never wants to pay for anything in the first place. And so for them to start covering this new procedure, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But that said, it depends on the indication. So for things such as pathology, trauma, etc., you know, there are certain instances where insurance is going to cover that. And that's also where you start getting medical insurance to cover these procedures as well. There is some success in billing the patient's medical insurance and having them reimburse you both for the scan and for the report, but it's varied both based on the insurance company itself, as well as again, the indication. So something like an implant that, you know, just a routine implant where the patient lost the tooth to caries or periodontal bone loss, that's probably not going to be covered under medical insurance, but something where you're doing implants that's replacing teeth due to trauma or pathology, there's a much better chance that medical insurance is going to cover everything at that point. Awesome. That's super helpful to know. You know, recently in the news, there's been a couple different people, dentists, you know, that were involved in malpractice cases that I think centered on the radiology type stuff. And one of the cases sounded like a surgeon who did, you know, some radiographs. I don't know the extent of it. I'm not sure you do, but he had this patient kind of after the fact sue him because apparently there's a vascular lesion and he did a biopsy and their patient had some really severe bleeding and complications and issues. And then I think later the you know attorneys that ever looked at the scan and said, oh, you should have seen and recognized that this was a vascular lesion and avoided all this issue. What are your thoughts on this case and maybe other cases that can kind of help us to see the value in really utilizing 
someone like you or at least going through the scan thoroughly before you do treatment? Yeah. So yeah, let's go over that lawsuit that you were talking about. So this was kind of a popular one for the oral radiologist because, you know, it directly establishes why a specialty like oral radiology is needed. So this lawsuit, it was over a man who was awarded something like 2.5 or 2.75 million dollars in a malpractice lawsuit. And this was because he had a dental procedure that caused hemorrhage and permanent injury, hospitalization. And a lot of it was focused around a missed or not necessarily missed, but misdiagnosed finding by the oral surgeon. And so from what I can gather from the news sources is that this patient presented to a oral surgery office for wisdom teeth extraction. And at some point, imaging was performed. I'm assuming a CBCT, that's what dentistry is using, right? And it sounds like a oral radiologist or a radiologist was consulted. And after going through the scan, there was an MRI that was recommended that should be performed as the CBCT wasn't sufficient for diagnosis. And so I couldn't find anywhere explicitly that this was stated, but I'm assuming that the radiologist had some suspicion that there was a vascular malformation. And the reason why I assume this is because we're not recommending MRI for every dentidrocyst that comes through or ameloblastoma or odontoma, right? Whenever we recommend an MRI with a contrast, it's very rare and it's usually very imperative for the treatment of this patient that that MRI is taken. And so obviously there was some indication behind this MRI recommendation and for whatever reason that recommendation was ignored by the oral surgeon. And so the third molars were extracted and the oral surgeon attempted to excise this lesion for biopsy and the oral surgeon failed to aspirate the lesion prior to biopsying it. And of course, the lesion turned out to be a vascular malformation. And this resulted obviously in massive hemorrhage, hospitalization, permanent nerve and vascular injury. And so that's where that lawsuit comes into place. So a large part of this lawsuit resulted from the fact that the oral radiologist had recommended something that would have changed the course of events. And obviously the oral surgeon chose to ignore that. And so there is a teamwork aspect that comes into play when you bring an oral radiologist onto your team. And we as oral radiologists, we're kind of in a, a weird position where we're really not a clinically treating specialty, right? We're not hands-on with the patient. You might be seeing the patient if you're working at an imaging center or at an academic center, but for a lot of private oral radiologists like myself, we're not seeing the patient. And so we're working with limited information. We're having to work in coordination with the office. And so all we can do is really make recommendations as far as treatment or what we're seeing. And since we're on this team treating this patient, it's really up to the referring doctor to sit down and decide whether or not to take those recommendations. In a lot of cases, obviously, this is a special case where that recommendation was ignored and there was a severe adverse effect that resulted because of it. But in general, I find that working with oral surgeons, other specialists, other dentists, 
it's really this nice balance of working together to come together and provide treatment for this patient as a team, as a whole. And where the radiologist fits in this is that, you know, as we were discussing earlier, there's a lot to go through on the scans, right? And the referring doctor might not always have time to sit down and go through every tiny little detail that should be evaluated. Now, for the oral radiologist, it's our responsibility when we receive a CBCT scan to go through and document all findings, anything that may be relevant to the treatment. And so that's where we start providing that value is if you either don't have the time or you don't have the expertise to go through and evaluate the scans in its fullest, that's where we can go through, provide that radiology report and say, hey, we see this lesion, we suspect that it's X, Y, and Z, we should do this, consider doing this prior to doing biopsy. And for us, we've gone through this advanced training, we've gone and looked through thousands and thousands of scans, and so it puts us in a unique position to provide some really unique insights into certain pathologies and certain procedures. So for in a case like this, where it's a vascular malformation, let's talk a little bit about what we're looking at. So first off, vascular malformations, they're a pretty rare entity within the jaws, especially intrabony lesions. So you can have vascular malformations that just involve the soft tissues, vascular malformations that are primarily intraosseous. So they can really be anywhere within the body. So normally you're going to first detect these lesions within the first to third decade of life. And typically they're going to be located within the posterior mandibular body and involving the mandibular canal at their intrabony lesions. And radiographically, these lesions, they're pretty variable in appearance. And it, it makes it a little difficult to diagnose these lesions because of that. So the most common appearance is a multilocular radiolucency, and this is a sometimes described as a honeycomb or soap bubble appearance. In other cases, these lesions are gonna be more ill-defined. Some cases they may be more well-defined, cyst-like, you know, you name it. And I think that's a large part of the reason why prior to biopsying, it's always recommended to aspirate the lesions. Now, sometimes radiographically, what you'll see are these sunray spicules projecting from the cortical surfaces that resemble a periosteal reaction from other lesions, such as like a osteosarcoma. Other radiographic findings you'll see is thinning and expansion of the cortices, resorption, displacement of teeth, mobility of teeth. Sometimes if the mandibular canal is involved, it'll be widened. Or in a lot of the cases that I've seen, there's going to be this serpiginous or winding appearance either to the canal or right around the canal. And then something that's really important to note when you're dealing with vascular malformations is the possibility that you have phleboliths. Now, the reason why this is so important is because phleboliths are pretty much a, a dead giveaway that you're dealing with a vascular lesion. I was looking at a case from a pediatric patient who had some kind of a soft tissue swelling within the airway. And while we were focused on the airway, we noticed some calcifications within the soft tissue. Taking a closer look, they resembled very much like phlebolis. And just based off of the presence of phlebolis, 
we were able to diagnose this as a vascular lesion and get them to the appropriate team to manage that. So phlebolists, there are these calcifications within vessels that form typically due to turbulence within an area within the vessels. On radiographs, there are going to be these more spherical, well-defined radiopacities within the involved tissues. And there's typically multiple phlebolists present. They're often more randomly distributed throughout the area rather than calcifications, say, associated with a calcified lymph node. So if you're lucky enough to get some phlebolists floating around and you're able to diagnose them as such, you know, you're pretty much guaranteed to be dealing with a vascular lesion of some sort. So now, if you're not lucky enough to get phlebolists on your radiograph, we now have a potentially long list of differentials, depending on some of the other characteristics of the lesion that you see. So if we have less aggressive features, we might need to consider other multilocular lesions, such as amelioblastoma, odontogenic myxoma, CGCGs. And then once we start getting into the more ill-defined borders and that speculated appearance, you know, now we have to consider more malignant lesions or aggressive lesions, such as like a osteosarcoma. And now clinically, a lot of these lesions are going to be completely asymptomatic. Now, some patients may have pain or swelling, but a lot are asymptomatic and these do grow with the patient. And so they might not initially have symptoms. They might not initially be clinically observable, but symptoms can develop later on as these lesions do grow. And clinically, if there is something evident, you can have tissue swelling, which may have like a purple discoloration. And obviously, if you aspirate the lesion, you're going to get blood, right? So, and, you know, as this legal case exemplifies, identifying these lesions is hugely important before going in for biopsy because there's cases where extracting adjacent teeth or doing other surgery in the area has caused severe or even fatal hemorrhage. Yeah, that's a really helpful run through of that. You know, when I look at some of these uh, panorexes and CBCT images of of uh, AV malformations. I mean, oftentimes you're, yeah, you're thinking like what you're saying at first, it looks kind of like an ameloblastoma or an osteosarcoma or something pretty aggressive. And so it's just so interesting that an AV malformation can have the appearance of so many other kind of tumors and even cancers. So do you have any other cases similar to this? Because I've had a couple cases too where patients told me that luckily it wasn't me, but they've been t- to dentists and had scans, you know, for years. And then later on in life, they were diagnosed with some tumor or cyst that was usually in their neck or their base of skull. And oftentimes now the dentist is in hot water because these things were showing up on some of the images they were taking and can be pretty problematic, you know, when a dentist is just focused on the teeth and stuff, and all of a sudden now they're liable for some of these other structures. Have you been a part of any cases like that? So I haven't been part of any legal cases. I'm a little bit wary to get into legal cases just because there's so much clinical background that you need to make those kind of decisions. And really, I don't ever want to be accusing a dentist of missing something. I don't want to be the aggressor on these legal cases because really, you know, there's always going to be times where 
each clinician falls short. I'm sure there's going to be cases where I fall short as well, right? It's just human nature. But of course, there are cases out there of dentists missing pathology, and I do get them in my practice sometimes, right? I, I'll be reviewing a scan to evaluate for new symptoms that have presented. I find some kind of lesion that's evident on the CBCT scan. I ask for any previous imaging, and when we pull it up, there is previous pathology that's evident, and it's grown significantly. So it does happen. Dentistry, thankfully, the population that we're serving is typically pathology-free, right? You and I, you as an oral surgeon and me as an oral radiologist, we have a, a little bit of this patient population because we tend to see more pathology and more of these complicated cases. But in general, you know, we're working on healthy patients, right? You know, healthy other than being, you know, rampant caries and everything. But in general, pathology is is rare in patients. That makes it a little easy for us as dentists because we're not having to find these crazy pathologies all the time. But at the same time, it does make it a little bit difficult because we really had to be on our A-game constantly, right? A lot of these pathologies, especially within the sinuses, they can be asymptomatic for quite a long time and they can really wreak havoc while the patient has no idea that they're there. Lesions like within the sphenoid sinus, I've seen uh, a case just this past week where a patient presented to the office and I, I love working with this office because they're just very thorough in their evaluation and their patient history. And the patient presented to the office and the patient was complaining of uh, repeated episodes of spontaneous sinus drainage. And so the, the office took a scan. And on the panoramic, you can see these mucus retention pseudocysts or antral pseudocysts on the panoramic. And, you know, it would be very easy just to attribute the patient's symptoms to these pseudocysts. You know, they spontaneously resolve, you get some drainage, you know, no big deal. But this office took the CBCT scan and sent it in, asking me to evaluate it. And of course, we see the mucus retention pseudocysts and the maxillary sinuses. We see some mucosal thickening. So you could easily just say that this is just chronic sinusitis or recurrent sinusitis, right? No big deal. Patient takes some decongestants and maybe goes to see an ENT, you know, move on with their life. But as I'm going through the scan, I also see some soft tissue mass in the sphenoid sinus. And initially I thought it was some mucosal thickening or another mucus retention pseudocyst. And as I start going through, I start to see this dehiscence within the lateral wall of the sphenoid sinus. And so now all these red flags are going off, right? We're not supposed to be seeing bone loss in the sphenoid sinus especially immediately adjacent to the soft tissue mass. So now we're having the patient go into their physician, getting additional imaging, MRI, CT with contrast to evaluate for some kind of pathology that's in the cranial region, right? And it's because this office was diligent with their medical history, diligent in ruling out the patient's symptoms, and the patient has this office to, to thank for that. And I think a lot of that is because of the patient or of the office's diligence in going through and ensuring that their patients are being fully treated, not just for dental-related issues.
Uh, so for people going through scans, taking CBCT scans and reading their own cases, one thing I would just highly recommend is just taking a little bit more time to go through your own scans. A lot of these things that happen, a lot of these mispathologies or a lot of the complications that arise in surgery happen because we're just not taking enough time to go through and evaluate the scan fully. So we all have those classic examples of implants going into the inferior outer nerve, damage to the IAN, lingual nerve injuries during wisdom tooth extraction. You can have anatomical variations such as like bifid mandibular canals or accessory mental foramens. And I think a lot of these cases would be resolved simply by just taking a little bit more time to one, review your imaging, look for any of these anomalies, try and figure out and predict the complications that are going to arise, and then preparing for them appropriately. So learn to love your CVCT, learn to go through your images efficiently and diagnostically, and that's going to keep you out of a lot of trouble. Yeah, that is really great advice. Maybe a question for you is, at what point, let's say you have a panorax and patient is starting to show some symptoms that suggest there's something and maybe you see something in a pano like a some type of mass or something that's irregular in the sinus at what point should a dentist say okay let's get a cbct of this area and look closer at it do you have any comments on that one yeah so Panoramic radiographs, first off, they're absolutely miserable for evaluating the sinuses. We're taught to go through and look at them, but really, you can't tell what's going on until there's significant changes. One of my favorite cases that's always stood out to me is this case where you have the panoramic and you're looking at all the different structures on it. And you can see that when you compare the left and the right, some of the floor of the maxillary sinus is starting to erode away and you know become a little bit of expanded. You have the zygomatic process that also is starting to fade away. So there's some hints that you know there's some kind of process going on within the maxillary sinus, but it's not terribly evident. And even we talk about radiopacity, radiolucency of the maxillary sinuses. You know, there's really not much of a difference in the density of the sinuses in this panoramic. And then you pull up the CVCT, and there's just this huge mass. It's just completely filling the maxillary sinus. It's expanded halfway through the nasal cavity, expanding into the sphenoid sinus. And it's just incredible how much panoramics miss in the sinus. And so realistically, with these CBCTs, it becomes much easier to see what's going on. And so I would say when a patient is having chronic symptoms, things that have been occurring for greater than eight weeks, especially, that's when we really start need to evaluating the sinuses. If you have signs of progressive obstruction within the nasal cavity or progressive symptoms, that's an indication definitely for a CBCT of the sinuses. And, you know, we're really not familiar as a dental community with a lot of the sinus pathology. We see a little bit on our PAs and panoramics, but it's typically just mucosal thickenings and mucus retention pseudocysts. But really, there's a whole world of pathology that we're now exposed to with CBCTs. 
So you start getting into the cytonasal polyposis, you can have mucosils, you can have all kinds of malignancies associated with the sinus. Another case that's a favorite of mine, you know, the patient had a submandibular swelling that couldn't really be explained by any odontogenic reasons. So they took a CBCT looking for some kind of evidence of, you know, maybe a sinus drainage going into the submandibular region, trying to figure out the swelling. And they did a large field of view, thankfully, and captured some of the sinuses. And as you're going through the sinuses, again, you see some, what you think is mucosal thickening, but as you go through and evaluate the scan a little bit more, you can see erosion of the posterior wall of maxillary sinuses, soft tissue mass extending into the airway. And this patient had squamous cell carcinoma within the maxillary sinus and a metastasis to their submandibular lymph node. So this is something that you would not have seen in your panoramic imaging. And so anytime that your 2D imaging is inconclusive, you know, I'm going directly to CBCT because you just learn so much more from that technology. It's incredible that we practiced without it in the past. Yeah, that is really helpful to hear some of the indications, you know, to be more serious about those sinus symptoms that a patient has and getting further imaging and kind of knowing what can happen there. Well, good. This has all been super helpful. I think my take-home points are be thorough with your scan, really go through it and document that, of course, to protect yourself. But just being a little more serious with looking at every aspect of the scan. And if there's things you're not sure about and not comfortable about, you know, referring and trying to get somebody who does know about it to, to take a look at it. And your services seem to be invaluable. If there are listeners who have further questions or are interested in your services, are you okay if they reach out and contact you? Yeah, of course. So you can email me at info at radiodontics.com or you can go to my site, radiodontics.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-D-O-N-T-I-C-S.com. And yeah, since it's all online, I can work with anyone within the United States. It's pretty fun. Well, good. And we end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. So first one is, what's the best book you've read in the past year? Oh, best book that I've read in the past year. Man, I, I'm so bad at reading books anymore ever since starting dental school because I always feel like I should be reading textbooks instead of a, just a regular book. But one book that I listened to recently on a road trip was The Martian, talking about a astronaut who's stranded on Mars. And, you know, they have a movie about it now, but the books are always better than the movies, right? So I'm always a big enjoyer of sci-fi. So grew up on Star Wars and Harry Potter and the such. So that's always my go-to category when finding books. Again, it, it's been a while. I should probably read more, but with three kids, I'm reading a lot of kids' books nowadays. So it's it's a lot of Curious George and the such. So... <laughs> Yep. I love that book, The Martian. I've also read it. It's by Andy Ware. It's so great. And the, the movie's awesome too. So usually uh, some of these rapid fire questions, I ask things about what's your favorite forceps to extract a tooth or <laughs> it's more oral surgery related. One question that I ask is, you know, what non-oral surgery thing do you do that helps you with your daily oral surgery skills? And so for you, it'd be what non-oral radiology things you do that helps you with your 
oral radiology skills. Is there anything that you do outside of radiology that kind of helps you with your, your job? Yeah. So as an oral radiologist, I'm in a dark office sitting or standing all day in front of a screen. So getting outside is huge for me. And since I do work from home, it's, it's pretty doable, thankfully. So I'll get out and play a round of golf during lunchtime with my buddies. And that's always helpful just to get the blood flowing, right? Because if you're just sitting down in front of a screen for eight hours straight and just trying to bust out cases, you start to glaze over and your diagnostic skills start to drop considerably. And so just something physical, right? If it's a colder day and I can't get outside, I'll just you know do a little short workout routine in between cases do some push-ups, do some stretching just to just to get the blood flowing, right? Because the more alert and aware you are, the better your reports are going to be. That's awesome. You remind me of when I was in residency, you know, there's several occasions where I had to take a closer look at scans and radiology gave a report. And then I said, you know, I really want to talk a little bit more about this because it's a very interesting case. And so I'd go, you know, to our hospital radiology room and usually it was this big pitch black room with a bunch of screens <laughs> and I go in there and it's and I felt like I'm talking with vampires or just these people who <laughs> linger in the darkness invariably there'd always be other people in the room that as I'm talking to one of them like somebody else would just drift in I'm like where the heck did that guy come from <laughs> you can't see anything and it's <laughs> yeah it's no no strange, it's a very accurate special. description <laughs> yeah no that's pretty much the experience in residency we had our residency room we had three computers on each wall and it was nearly pitch black it was pretty much just lit by computer screens and yeah very much you know dungeon-esque yes uh, you know, I don't know if this is the case with all oral radiologists, but they were so excited when I would go into the room and say, can we look at the scan closer? And they just got so excited. This is great. Look at this. Scrolling through the images. Can you believe that? Look at that one millimeter difference in such and such. And I think they really, <laughs> they really appreciated when a clinician wanted to kind of delve into a scan and not just glaze over their report. Yeah, no, I kind of consider us to be the accountants of the dental world, right? We're all, I feel like, a little bit nerdy, a little bit introverted, which, you know, there's definitely truth to that for myself as well. But no, it's kind of interesting. As an oral radiologist and radiologist just in general, we don't have a lot of opportunity to talk to people about cool cases because it's all very technical, right? You know, I'll spend a whole day going through really cool cases and my wife will be sitting there talking to me at dinner and she'll be like, oh, how's work? Like, how did work go today? And it's like, oh, yeah, I had some really cool cases. And that's pretty much all I can say, because, you know, for, for her, like an amyloblastoma or squamous cell carcinoma, it really doesn't mean much. But for me, that's an exciting case. And so when someone else is willing to sit down and to listen for a few minutes about my thought process and going through the scan and, oh, yeah, this is a really cool feature that you don't see very often. You know, it's our few opportunities to geek out over what we love to do. And so, yeah, anytime you want to sit down and talk about a case, you know, we love that. We don't get much opportunity to talk to other doctors or patients, right? So we love just sitting down and talking about our fun cases. That's awesome. Well, last question for you is, what is your favorite quote? 
Do you have a quote or a mantra that you come back to in your life? Oh, favorite quote or mantra. You know, this is like someone asks you what your favorite music is, and then all of a sudden you can't think of it <laughs> yeah. anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. All my head's just been filled with radiology terms and like shortcuts for my radiology reports, right? It's like clinical correlation is advised. Yeah. That's my like life mantra now. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, that's awesome. Well, good. I think this has been super, super helpful. It's good to know that there are oral radiologists out there who specialize in oral and maxillofacial surgery type stuff and that we can kind of lean on for some of our cases. This is really, really helpful. It's something that I think can protect us, but more importantly, help our patients to just get more information and more direction because that's the beauty of x rays. Oftentimes it shows things even before clinical symptoms can start up. And if you can catch stuff like that, you can really help a lot of patients and sometimes even save a life. So pretty cool stuff. Awesome. Thank you, Barrett, for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Excellent. Well, yeah, let's keep in touch. And I appreciate you taking time out of your Saturday to discuss some of this stuff with me. Yeah, no problem. Glad we could finally make it happen. And if anyone ever needs any help with their oral radiology stuff, I'd be more than happy to help out. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Yeah, take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.